You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Wow, what a warm up. What more could I possibly say? Uh, good morning. Good morning. My name is Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here of the village. Uh, it's good to see you guys this morning. If you're new here with us, haven't been around very long, uh, I'm not usually the guy up here preaching. That's usually Pastor Michael. He uh, is taking a well-deserved day off uh, this weekend, and so I hope that he is doing well. Glad that you guys are here uh, with me. Before I get started, um, I just want to adultery today that I'm not speaking into a void, um, all right? Like, this is for some of you all a deeply uh, personal, intimate part of of your story, past or present, living in the wake of, of this, maybe as uh, a kid or a friend or a loved one, maybe you're living in the thick of it right now as a, a participant, um, or maybe as somebody who has been hurt uh, and betrayed by this stuff. And so I, I know that even though uh, we're unpacking a, a very impersonal, short uh, law this morning that there's no way for me to preach on this stuff and have it not feel personal uh, to you all in some way. And so I just want to be clear that the gospel that, that we preach, um, it's not meant to single out any single one of you or, or any particular uh, kind of sin or any one kind of person as being too far gone uh, from the reach of God's grace or beyond repair or any of those things. But, but it will show us that, uh, that we are all, apart from God's grace, goners, right? The only person the gospel is going to single out this morning, uh, and the only person the gospel should single out any week that we gather together is Jesus, and, and the life that he faithfully lived, the condemnation that he took for us on the cross, and the grave that, that he overcame to bury our sin, and our guilt, and our shame, and all of us uh, in an abundance of, of grace. And so there's a, a supernatural reconciliation, and restoration, and resilience uh, that, that we're offering this morning, that he is offering to you this morning through the gospel. And so I'm grateful because of that, that no matter where you find yourself this morning, whether you are uh, in need of conviction uh, or in need of comfort or in need just of a reminder of, of Jesus' faithfulness to you, um, I'm glad that you're here uh, with us today. And so, uh, man, the church exists also outside of Sunday morning. And so if you, you need to walk this through with somebody or need to talk with someone outside of, you know, this hour and a half or two hours, then, then we would love to chat with you and hear from you and, and help walk with you through uh, these things. So if you would, before we get started, would you just join me uh, in prayer? Uh, God, very simply, this morning, we just need your help. Um, would you help us to hear what your word would speak to us? Even in, in five words, uh, would you let some of the counsel of your whole scriptures just come to bear on us this morning? Um, would you allow us to see truth and to see ourselves rightly and to see you rightly? Uh, and, and would you let us walk out of here this morning with a greater love and devotion and understanding of your faithfulness to us in spite of our wayward hearts towards you and towards one another. God, help us this morning by your spirit, uh, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, yeah, this morning we're unpacking five whole words uh, today, right, which for some people would be tough to spend 40 minutes doing that, but if you all know me, man, I only get eight minutes per word today, which is not that much for me. So look, um, this is the roadmap that we're going to walk through this morning. Uh, first point is this, that adultery uh, is a larger covenant 
problem. That's what that is. Freedom is God's covenant fulfilled. Uh, and, and the main idea, the big idea that we want to land on this morning, that we want to bring to bear is this, that receiving covenant faithfulness from God ref, uh, frees us to reflect covenant faithfulness to one another. All right? So that's the main idea for this morning. We're going to start by looking at the first point, which is this, that adultery is a larger covenant problem. All right, so uh, imagine that you are a college student. You're going to college, and you are taking uh, a class on the Old Testament. You show up to class one day, and, and you're talking about Old Testament law, all right? Uh, and before you, you jump in to you shall not commit adultery, your professor starts class by asking uh, you just to take a few minutes at your seat and, and think about these things, come up with some answers to these questions. Uh, what impact does adultery have on the economic well-being of your hometown? What impact has adultery had on upcoming generations uh, who are currently growing up in your hometown? What about the stability of your community, uh, economically, but, uh, but legally, logistically, uh, psychologically, spiritually? How are those things affected by adultery? This is how uh, Dr. Sandy Richter, uh, she's a, an author, a professor, uh, and a chair of biblical studies at Westmont College in Southern California. This is how she gets her students to start thinking about adultery uh, in ways that we don't often think about them today, but in ways that God's people in the Old Testament automatically would think about the consequences, the ramifications of adultery. Adultery is uh, a covenant problem, and yes, one of those covenants is the covenant of Marriage. It's a violation of this unique two becoming one flesh lifelong union between a, a husband and a wife uh, that we see in the scriptures. And today, adultery is when somebody uh, gives themselves to someone in a way, whether that's sexually, emotionally, relationally, uh, they give themselves to someone that they're not married to in a way that was only meant to be shared in the covenant relationship of marriage. And that's adultery today. When that happens, it's, it's devastating. It's a devastating thing, and yet marriage is not the only covenant that this particular commandment about adultery has in mind. Nor, and this is going to maybe sound crazy, nor is it the most important covenant that this command has in mind this morning. So let's back up and remember kind of where we are uh, in the Old Testament. If you've not been with us or uh, if you've just forgotten, we are in Exodus 20. Uh, and what's happening here is that God is making a covenant, uh, a contractual arrangement with Israel. Uh, this group of people that he has saved uh, from slavery in Egypt and brought to safety. And so God's deal is this. If they will live rightly with him and with one another as a, a faithful covenant community, right, then he will be their God and they will be his people forever. And so all of these Ten Commandments that we're going through right now, uh, we're kind of in the middle of them, uh, including this one today about adultery, is part of a, uh, a bigger covenant. It spells out how they're supposed to live together, that they might live with God forever. And so this is a big deal. This means that, that each commandment that we're covering uh, the last few weeks and the coming few weeks, they ha it has a covenant significance that's bigger and, and above and beyond just itself. They exist for something bigger. And so while marriage is a huge deal, and the Lord by no means minimizes anyone breaking or violating the covenant of marriage, the marriage covenant, uh, those things are folded into a much larger covenant, a much larger purpose that actually makes marriage all the more important. 
Adultery isn't just this quiet kind of covenant problem in the private lives of a husband and a wife, but it's a problem within God's greater covenant community. It's, it's going to affect the people around them in many ways, not the least of which for, for Israel here in the Old Testament at the foot of this mountain uh, before the presence of God is that it threatens their very covenant relationship with him. Him being their God and them being his people hinge on their faithfulness, right? So the happily ever after that's at stake here is, is much bigger than just two people riding off into the sunset together. So look, we can actually see this, say that, that you shall not commit adultery, but to do that we have to talk about what adultery uh, really was in the Old Testament. So adultery in the Old Testament did have to do with being unfaithful in the covenant of marriage, and this is how we usually think about it today, right? Uh, but in the Old Testament, infidelity, infidelity was only considered adultery when the woman involved was already married to someone else. All right, so, so if a man, whether they were married or single, happened to sleep with a woman, it was only considered adultery if that woman was someone else's wife, not if she was single. All right, now, it still wasn't okay to do that, to sleep with someone outside of marriage. It wasn't okay, just like it isn't today, right? And there were legit penalties uh, to pay when that occurred. And lots of those restrictions, lots of those penalties were meant to actually protect women and deter men from taking advantage of them. But that's a conversation for uh, another day. Um, but, but what we get to see here is that when the Old Testament talks about adultery, it's more concerned with a wife's faithfulness to her husband. And here's why. Uh, Mori Povich did not exist yet to do paternity tests, right? What's on the first page of the New Testament? Anybody tell me, legit, what's on the very first page, the beginning of the New Testament? What's that? Genealogy. That's right, so genealogy. Who's genealogy? Jesus' genealogy, right? So Matthew includes this genealogy uh, of Jesus because it traces his lineage all the way back to Abraham, the father uh, of God's covenant people. And it was in part through Abraham's sons who would become fathers and their sons who would become fathers and their sons who would become fathers, so on and so forth, that God's promises would pass down to work itself out in future generations. And it was from those clear lines of descendants that the Savior himself was promised to come. Right? The Old Testament says that the Savior is going to come from an offspring of Eve, a descendant of Abraham, part of Israel, tribe of Judah, right, son of David, all those things. And so imagine uh, flipping open your Bible to the very first page in the New Testament, and it reads this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who was probably the son of David, and we're pretty sure was the son of Abraham. Our historical confidence in Jesus being the promised Messiah is called into question if we can't correctly identify this question, is he really the father? Like anywhere in Jesus' lineage. That, that's an uncertainty that adultery produces today. Uh, it's literally why any of us still talk about Mori Povich, right? Why is a meme and all those things. And this, this uncertainty was an unsolvable problem, right? Back in Old Testament times, long before they revealed paternity tests in front of a live studio audience, right? That wasn't a thing back then. And so, look, Jesus is obviously the low-hanging fruit uh, here, but, but this is a community in which blessings and inheritance, uh, family structures, community structures, rulers, they were built on the confidence that a son rightly belonged to his father, because that's how things were passed down. You could see how adultery 
right, would then introduce some difficulties, not just in the marriage, but for the entire community. Families to, to link themselves together or communities to, to collaborate or cooperate or even countries to make political arrangements. So you can see how breaking this marriage covenant was a much bigger affair than what a few people did behind closed doors. It was a problem for the entire covenant community and its, and its ongoing relationship and its covenant relationship with the Lord. So many of you, uh, many of us here this morning, we know this already in some ways, even if we wouldn't put those words to it. We've, we've lived it. We felt the effects of adultery in many ways, shape, and, and forms, even if we, we weren't directly involved in it. It impacts uh, our, our trust, obviously, between a, a husband and a wife. It impacts trust. It impacts friendships, right? Some of us, even if we're, we're not for one side or the other and we hear about stuff, we feel like we're forced to choose between in some way, shape, or form. Or we're just not sure how to navigate that. Or uh, if you're one of the, the people participating, you might feel like you have to build a bridge to another community, another group of friends where you can feel safe and you kind of cut people off and, and find some new folks. Or, man, those who are in the uh, throes of adultery, man, th- their kids, if they have kids, it, it, it puts something on them that then affects and impacts the way that they think about relationships down the road. It impacts cities and churches and communities, uh, leaders, business owners, right, who with a, a fallen reputation they have to step down. It creates change, maybe uh, for better, maybe for worse. Or maybe they have to close up shop altogether and, and people lose their jobs or the landscape of a community or a neighborhood or whatever changes. And that's not even touching on financial, logistical, relational, all sorts of things that, that happen if separation or divorce occurs because of that. And adultery impacts us spiritually. A crisis of confidence in our relationship with the Lord, right? Not because of, of Jesus' historic lineage, um, but in the there, there's no way that Jesus could be faithful to me. Either he, he hasn't been faithful to me, which is why I felt the need to go out and, and do this in the first place to get what I think I need that he hasn't given me or supplied me with. Or uh, now there's no way that he would be faithful to me. Uh, a sinner who has so grievously betrayed my covenant or someone else's covenant of marriage who broke this command of God so plainly. Or it might shake our confidence in our covenant betrayal. Because we might think that if this person, this person who made such a promise to me, who lived with me, who knew me, who experienced me in ways that, that no one else had, could find me wanting or lacking or unworthy of being faithful to, then why would the Lord think anything different of me? Why should he be faithful to me? Like college students who've had uh, Dr. Richter for Old Testament law at Weston, it's clear to us that this exercise and exploring just just on the surface and from a distance the the real impact of adultery it's tough and it's hard but but it not only helps us debunk the lie that adultery is this private sin that can live tucked between the sheets or secretly uh, behind closed doors or in deleted texts or in deleted dms or whatever but and, and this is key it helps us see the full scope of what god wants to spare us from when he says you shall not commit adultery this commandment is absolutely a restriction on your sexual freedom on our sexual expression it requires some boundaries and some exclusions and all sorts of things in our relationships whether we're married or single 
this morning. And while we can be quick to believe restrictions like this are somehow robbing us of something good, something harmless and fun, right? Something that, that maybe we're entitled to or that we deserve. What's actually true is that God is trying to keep us from robbing ourselves and robbing one another of the beauty and trust and the intimacy and security of steadfast, faithful, covenant relationships, not only in marriage, but, but in the greater covenant community. And this is meant to remind us, to reinforce for us the sufficiency of God's covenant faithfulness to us, which is so much more than stepping back and just not doing anything wrong. And so let's, let's talk about what faithfulness really looks like. This is point two, faithfulness is active covenant living. All right, so look, you can, you can obey this command and still miss on being faithful, right? And, and I want to illustrate this by, <clears throat> uh, this is a hard shift, all right, in tone, uh, by talking about Burger King. So uh, there's an infamous story from, from years ago uh, when Kelly and I, on a rare occasion, we had a hankering for, for Burger King. Uh, I probably wanted a Whopper. Kelly wanted just a cheeseburger. So I, I go to Burger King, uh, look at the menu. I go inside, look at the menu, uh, clearly see Whopper on the board, right? Whopper's there. That's their, that's their big sandwich. But I'm looking around. For the life of me, I cannot just find cheeseburger on the menu. I cannot just find the word cheeseburger. Every other specialty sandwich, right, uh, every other side, everything else is there. But I cannot find just a regular cheeseburger. So I, I get home. I put the bag on the counter, and I say, Sorry, babe, I had to get you a Whopper Junior because they just didn't have a, a regular cheeseburger. And Kelly looked at me like an idiot, <laughs> rightly, and said, what, what do you mean they don't have cheeseburgers at Burger King? I was like, what, what it wasn't on the menu. And she's like, it's Burger King. How do they not have cheeseburgers on the menu? And so, look, that kind of went around over and over and over again. But that was the last time I ever went to Burger King, uh, right, for the two of us. This was the last Burger King run I ever made. Now, look, I was... Technically right, right? I swear, there were, cheeseburger was nowhere on that menu. I, I abided by what I saw, what was written there, but, but I sort of missed the entire point of Burger King's existence, which is to make and sell cheeseburgers so you can have it your way, right? Like, I, I just missed the entire point of their existence. And some of us look at Exodus 20, 14, the way that I looked at Burger King's menu, right? We think that, well, all I see is that if I don't sleep with someone who's not my spouse, then I'm being faithful. But there's so much more to it than that. If, if that's how we define faithfulness, then we're missing the point. It's technically true, right, that, look, if you do sleep with someone who's not your spouse, that's not being faithful. But faithfulness isn't defined only by the absence of infidelity. That, that's, a, that's a pretty low bar, right? Uh, if we know what it looks like to commit adultery, what does it look like to commit faithfulness. So fortunately, before we hear about all the, the negative stuff, adultery and excess, God gives us a positive vision of faithfulness uh, in Genesis. So uh, we're going to look at Genesis 2. This is after uh, he made Adam, the, the first man, but before he made the woman. Genesis 2, 18 through 25 says this, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, and the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, so what does this tell us about God's vision for covenant faithfulness? Number one, faithfulness prioritizes covenant relationships above all others. Husbands and wives, they become one flesh. They become a new joint family. And so spouses become more important than parents, more important than in-laws, co-workers, friends, and each spouse is as important as the other spouse. They're both made in the image of God, and one, according to this picture in Genesis, comes literally from the side of the other, right? And although they're still two people, their livelihoods, they're now intertwined and interdependent in a way that what's good for one is what's good for the other, and the other's good is what each spouse should be after. This, this kind of covenant faithfulness will show up in the choices that we make, whose voices matter more to us throughout our life and decisions that we are making or just in the daily stuff of, of life, even the way you define what's best, not just for your family, but, but for you, because now those two things are the same, right? Number two, faithfulness builds a safe relational culture right, that encourages vulnerability and affirms what's true and good about the other. Adam and Eve are naked and they are unashamed. They're exposed. They're vulnerable with one another in every way, and it is a good and safe thing. And sadly, man, that might feel foreign to some of us here today, maybe all of us. And, and look, it's not just that they didn't bring sexual baggage into their into their marriage, right? That wasn't a thing before sin. But more importantly here, they don't create shame. They don't cast blame in the bedroom or in any other part of their relationship. In this way, right, covenant faithfulness will show up in the way we speak to one another. What we motivate one another with, not guilt and shame or fear or threats or any of those things, but with grace and with truth to give life and to encourage, not manipulate Faithfulness works together on God's mission. Spouses don't prioritize one another and build this healthy relational culture so they can turn completely inward, right? right stop talking to friends, become entirely wrapped up, perform faithful husbands and wives, support one another as suitable, complementary partners to carry out the mission of God. Uh, we didn't read this today, but, but in Genesis 1, God says the mission is to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over every living thing, and to work together uh, to, to work it and keep it. Today, our great commission is to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to multiply disciples of Jesus, to advance the kingdom to the far reaches of the earth. And so, look, spouses will be most satisfied in their marriage when they put their marriage to work for what it was made for, God's glory through disciple-making. You can have all the date nights, or you can take all the vacations, have the, the best home, have picturesque uh, quiet times with coffee and 
Bibles open and all that kind of stuff, but if your marriage is all about itself, then your, your marriage, despite how much fun you're having, uh, despite how happy you might be, is stunted. And so are you. Again, notice that the covenant of marriage here in Genesis, just like in Exodus, uh, is part of a larger covenant. It's part of a larger purpose than itself. It takes the active participation uh, of everyone in the covenant community as they relate to one another as husbands and wives to see through this vision of covenant faithfulness. Uh, we get to see each other not just as spouses, but also brothers and sisters, that the people of God in general, not simply sleeping with someone. By doing that or not doing that is not going to create this kind of a community that's faithful in all of these ways. To be clear, uh, single folks, right, you don't have to wait until you're married to start living this kind of covenant life, right? You may not have a spouse within the covenant of marriage, but you do have brothers or sisters in the covenant community of the church. Prioritize them. Prioritize your siblings in Christ over others and over yourself. You, you don't have to be married in order to be someone that, that people, married or non-married people, want to talk uh, want to talk to you about things, right? Be safe, be vulnerable, grow in wisdom. Be known as a man or a woman who reminds people, who reminds me of what's good and true about the Lord and about themselves. Orient your life around the mission of God. Just like marriages aren't meant to turn inward, singleness isn't a journey of your self-discovery or, or the search for the person that's going to make you a whole person at some point. Those are lies, <laughs> and, and you don't have to believe them. Uh, but if you do believe them, let, let me tell you this, you won't magically stop believing them once you're married. <laughs> Inward-facing married folks uh, didn't become that way when they said, I do. They're likely that way because in singleness, their eyes were fixed on themselves or on their spouse, and in marriage, they simply stayed there. That doesn't have to be true for you or for any of us. Uh, this morning and moving forward. And yet, and yet, having said all those things, uh, here we are. And, and I, I don't know some of you, and I do know some of you, and I know some of your stories, even just in part, there's, there's infidelity, and there's separation, there's divorce, there's maybe singleness that you don't want, or, or a marriage that you don't want, a sexual history, or sexual abuse, or sexual addiction. Maybe a combination of those things and, and maybe often in spite of wanting to live a life that, that is marked by this kind of covenant faithfulness. But what's clear for all of us is that we're no longer striving for this kind of faithfulness in, in a perfectly manicured garden that was made just for us. That was, that's free from sin, free from guilt, free from shame, free from things happening to us, suffering, shame, baggage, all that stuff. And so some of you I know, hear this vision for covenant faithfulness, and you get excited, right? You see the possibility, and, and you can't wait to get to work on your singleness or on your marriage, and, and that's great. But others, when they hear about this kind of faithfulness, they see impossibility. You want to weep because it doesn't feel like this is anything that you could possibly experience. You've not experienced it in your life, and you can't imagine experiencing this sort of covenant faithfulness at all in the future. You want to hide Maybe you want to hate yourself for, for what you've done or what's been done to you or, or both. No matter where you find yourself on that spectrum, possibility, impossibility, I want you to know there's a bigger and a better hope that dwarfs anything you've ever done or can do or that's been done 
to you because the kind of, of covenant faithfulness the church is built on, that, that your life and that your relationships can be built on, isn't just the, the half-hearted faithfulness that you've given to other people or that you've received or, or hoped to receive from another man or another woman. And it's on the perfect faithfulness of God himself. A, a perfect faithfulness that we're freely given long before we even, even, ever even know that it's there, right? It's there long before that, despite the fact that we don't even deserve it and that we can't even begin to try to reflect in our own lives through the way that we live and the way that we relate without first receiving that kind of faithfulness ourselves. And so this is the third and final point for this morning, that freedom is God's covenant fulfilled. I stumbled upon uh, an article in The Atlantic uh, that was published a few years ago um, when I was researching this stuff, and uh, it was titled, Why Happy People Cheat. And it caught my eye uh, as I was prepping for this. It was written by um, Esther Perel. Uh, she's a, a secular Belgian therapist, all right? So not a Christian, uh, no Christian worldview here, who, who does most of her work in relationships, uh, all right? And so she, she writes this in her article. She says, uh, if you have everything that you need at home, as modern marriage promises, uh, you should have no reason to go elsewhere. Hence, infidelity must be a symptom of a relationship gone awry. Now, that makes sense, right? Usually we think about, uh, yeah, if stuff's not great at home, um, then you're probably maybe going to go out and try to find it somewhere else. That's usually what we think of when we think about people cheating. Oh, what, what's happening at home? Like, how is that relationship messed up? But, but she goes on and she says this. This symptom theory, however, has, has several problems. First, it reinforces the idea that there is such a thing as a perfect marriage that will inoculate us against wanderlust. But, but our new marital ideal has not curbed the number of men and women who wander. In fact, in a cruel twist of fate, it is precisely the expectation of domestic bliss that may set us up for infidelity. Once, she says, we strayed because marriage was not supposed to deliver love and passion. Right? It was just what people did. They just got married and they, and they did their thing. Today, she says, we stray because marriage fails to deliver the love and passion it promised. It's not our desires that are different today, but the fact that we feel entitled, even obligated to pursue them. All right, she goes on. Uh, for some, she says, affairs are a form of self-discovery, a quest for a new or lost identity. For these seekers, infidelity is less likely to be a symptom of a problem, we'll come back to that, uh, and more likely an expansive experience that involves growth and exploration and transformation. Now, she writes this, okay, what I'm about to say, she, she writes this, expansive, I can hear some people exclaiming, self-discovery, cheating is cheating, whatever fancy new age labels you want to put on it. It's cruel, it's selfish, it's dishonest, and it's abusive. Indeed, she writes, to the one who has been betrayed, it can be all these things. Intimate betrayal feels intensely personal, a direct attack in the most vulnerable place. And yet, I often find myself asking jilted lovers uh, when she's counseling folks to consider a question that seems ludicrous to them. What if the affair had nothing to do with you? So this might sound bonkers to some of us hearing about this, and I'm not endorsing, to be clear, endorsing what she's saying here, 
uh, in any way, shape, or form. But I will say that in describing how infidelity isn't always a symptom of something wrong in a relationship with the other person that you're in a relationship with, she is describing infidelity as a symptom of something wrong in the human heart. Which is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 5. And so let's, let's read this. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Jesus says this. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. All right, first, uh, Jesus here drives home uh, an even higher ideal of covenant faithfulness. All right, uh, it isn't simply not cheating on your spouse. Um, it's not just a matter of priorities or relational safety or mission. No, covenant faithfulness is a whole person devotion uh, of one person to another, right down to the, inver- to the very intentions of our hearts. Right? We're in this thing for the other person in every way with every part of our being and we don't give ourselves away in that way to anybody else even in our imaginations right that he says is is faithfulness but but in driving the ideal of covenant faithfulness higher he explicitly sets the bar for adultery at its highest place yet you can not sleep with someone who's not your spouse you can have those priorities in check and and be affirming and orient your marriage around supporting one another in, in ministry and all those things. And yet if you even look or, or stare, uh, would actually be a better word here, at a woman or anyone with lustful intent, you've committed adultery with that person. Not in bed, not over the phone, but, but, in, your, but in your heart. And, and there is a distinction to be sure, right? Last week we talked about murder um, and how harboring unrighteous anger towards someone is not the same thing as actually killing them in real life but it all comes from the same place so it is with adultery playing something out in your mind on your own it's not the same thing as actually doing that in real life but it all comes from the same place it's all a violation a dishonoring of that whole person devotion that only exists between a husband and a wife it's it's adultery And so Jesus calls us to action, to rid ourselves of what what causes us to even look at someone else with lustful intent. Tear out your eye, right? Cut off your hand. And so we put content filters on our phones and on our laptops. We create accountability groups. We go to marriage conferences. Uh, We don't interact in otherwise appropriate ways with people of the opposite sex. We, we might even try to make our significant other happy in ways that we shouldn't, all to adultery-proof ourselves, our singleness and our marriages, because if we do, we'll finally be faithful and we'll finally be free of the threat of sin and infidelity. But while we're busy with, with eye-tearing and hand-cutting, the one thing that we can't do for ourselves or for one another is remove our hearts. 
which is where all this leads, because this is the place where Jesus says the problem comes from in the first place. The problem doesn't lie in our eyes or in our hands. The problem exists, resides, lives, dwells in our hearts. Esther was absolutely right. Our own unsatisfied desires, our own entitlement drives infidelity despite how great our spouse, our marriage, our content filters, our groups might be. Right? Adultery doesn't just have a spiritual impact. It has a spiritual root, and that root is sin. And since sin isn't something that you can cut out or cut off, you can't block it, you can't restrict it, you can't therapy it out of you, uh, then there is no such thing as an adultery-proof singleness or an adultery-proof marriage. There's no such thing as the perfect marriage that will inoculate us against wanderlust. That is looking to your marriage as your savior and deliverer. And so our hope is illuminated here uh, in, in Ephesians 5. We're going to look at verses 22 through 32. See if we can see it. Paul writes this about marriage and about more than marriage. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of lender, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blameless. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, how you hear that passage this morning will tell you a lot about where your hope is. Where your hope is for you or for your spouse or for your marriage or for a future that may not even include a spouse or a marriage. How many of you, when we were reading that, heard instructions for husbands and wives? Or heard a checklist for yourself or for your spouse or for a future spouse? If any time you hear this passage and the loudest thing is what you have to do, what you have to do, and not what Jesus has already done for you, then let me tell you, you've pulled a Burger King. You, you've missed the point of this passage. Let me read it again. But, but just, just the parts that ought to be the loudest for us this morning. Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church because we are members of his body. This ought to scream at us this morning as we're talking about adultery. Again, we're talking about marriage, and yet the most important covenant that the scriptures say we should have in mind isn't the covenant of marriage itself, but the larger covenant that God wants to make with us, that he would be our God and we would be his people. The covenant that we walk away from every time we walk away from our spouse or walk into an affair or let our imaginations uh, lead us into things and places that, that they shouldn't. All because we think that he's not been faithful to us. He's not given us what we need. He's not given us what we need to be who we are, what we need to be happy, right? Who we think we're supposed to be. So we stray from him. We stray from his command and his covenant in order to go get it for ourselves. And yet God in his grace and in his mercy not only makes that covenant with us, but he chases us down and he fulfills that covenant for us every way in Christ. In just a minute, we're going to sing the words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And I can't think of a better in Ephesians 5, not of a husband and of a wife who have it all together, who have created this adultery-proof marriage, but of a, a fully faithful Jesus who gave himself, who devoted his whole being, heart and mind, body and soul, life and death to marry his life to ours. A people with hearts who are prone to adultery, who need saving, who need sanctifying, who, who need to be cleansed and washed and don't know what it is to be made splendid or holy, to be nourished and cherished. He, he pursues us while we're still like that. He chases us down, and he does that for no other reason than that we are his. That's the picture of Ephesians 5. God's covenant faithfulness that we receive and then we get to reflect in our marriages, in all of our relationships, married or not. So let me tell you something this morning, that, that there is no vaccine that can inoculate marriage or singleness against lust or the impact that adultery might have, but there is a gospel that can grant you a resilience to whatever hardship or exposure that might come your way. For every imperfect relationship, there is the perfection of Jesus. For every betrayal, there's the faithfulness of Jesus. For every sin, there's the forgiveness of Jesus. For every broken relationship, there's hope for reconciliation that, that Jesus makes possible. And the promise that even if it doesn't work out, who you are and what you're worth doesn't end there. Because your life your identity, your purpose is not married to anyone else but Jesus, right? Those things are tied to no other person but him. No spouse, no fling, no significant other can give those things to you or hold them hostage. And so you are free to be faithful no matter what. Because there's nothing inside or outside your marital status, nothing inside or outside the restrictions that God has given us to spare us from pain that can give you more than what you already have in Christ. But it's only by first receiving the faithfulness of Jesus for us, soaking in it day by day, moment by moment, that we can even begin to enter into our singleness, into our marriages, however great 
or Robert challenging indulgence, reflecting his faithfulness in all things. And that's what I want us to reflect on as we close out our time this morning. I want you to imagine uh, not just the impact that adultery, my faithfulness was the bombshell. What if the scandal of your family tree or your past was that it, it didn't rattle your confidence in the Lord because you know his promises are passed down through faith in his faithfulness, not your faithfulness or your family's or knowing who your biological dad is? What if we stopped seeing brothers and sisters in Christ as merely potential future spouses or merely as liabilities for sexual temptation, but instead started to see them as siblings and assets to the kingdom of God that we get to partner with. I want us to take some time this morning and ponder with some spirit-fueled imagination what this covenant community could look like if we truly believed and received the faithfulness of God that he has delivered to us in Jesus. And so, band, you guys can come on up. Uh, I want to just invite you all this morning to reflect on whatever the Spirit might be stirring in you today. Maybe there's conviction over sin that you think is hidden, that it's, it's really not. Maybe it's a very public sin. Maybe it's, it's dealing with sin in response to suffering that you're feeling because you feel betrayed by people or by the Lord in such a way and you feel tempted or drawn to go do something that you know that you shouldn't. And even if you had, grace abounds. And so I just want you to sit this morning with the word and the spirit, knowing the good, faithful news of a faithful Jesus, and, and ask him to help you respond to whatever he's stirring in you this morning. Um, I want to invite you all, there's communion up here as you're sitting, uh, as you're thinking through stuff. If, if you're repenting of sin, uh, if you are clear and your conscience is clean with the Lord, then we invite you to come up here and partake in communion. These little uh, cups, um, they have a wafer and juice in them. They are representative of the body of Christ that he uh, broke for us on the cross and the blood of Christ that he shed for us on the cross that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God through him and him alone. And so uh, when you come up here this morning uh, to partake in communion, this is for believers, uh, for folks who are having a clean conscience in the Lord, for those who with him. For everyone else, just because communion may not be for you this morning, Jesus is for you this morning, and so are we as the church. And we would love to chat with you about whatever. And so there's space, obviously, at your seat to pray. You can pray at this prayer brunch. Uh, I will be by this red tree over here. There'll be some folks over by that red tree back there who would love to pray with you, right? And if for whatever reason you feel this morning uncomfortable with talking to someone, which I get, man, uh, fill out a card, drop it off in the, in the Connect uh, desk or in one of those mailboxes. I would love to follow up with you later this week about those things. But, but for this morning, right now, would you let the Spirit stir you to respond, either in worship, conviction, comfort, whatever that might be. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us this morning. Uh, you alone know what's in the hearts, in the pasts, uh, the presents, the futures of the people that are here in this room. Um, and the call to follow you and to trust your faithfulness is not an easy call. Um, it's tough and comes with hardship. It comes at a cost. And so for those here wrestling with whether or not that's worth it this morning or not knowing where to go, I just, I pray that, that you would give them the courage, uh, that you would reveal yourself to them in such a way that they couldn't help but not take the next step whatever that happens to look like, as scary as that might be, to talk with us, to talk with you, 
to trust you to walk this out together as a covenant community. And so I, I pray for your spirit to be uh, with this church this morning. Empower us um, with that gospel resilience, not just to deal with our own stuff, but to deal with other people's stuff as well. Help us to step into those difficult relationships and situations and offer good news. Not guilt, not shame, not fear, but, but the news of a faithful Savior that we have in Jesus. And so God, help us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.